0: What we've read is John's, or what Glennis and Marion have read to us this morning, is John's incredible eyewitness account of the of the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus who the biblical authors and who uh, secular uh, historians tell us that only three days earlier he'd been uh, beaten beyond recognition, was put to death publicly by professional executioners, and then. And then his mangled corpse was then hastily embalmed, packed with spices and that, and, then, and locked away in a tomb so that his followers could forevermore see where his dead body remained one of the main reasons for having Jesus killed like this was to put an end to the movement, the, the group of people that were beginning to gather and follow Jesus. More and more, this movement of people saw Jesus as as, as a Messiah, as God's anointed agent of restoration. Only unlike other messianic claimants, Jesus kind of spoke differently he had a he had a self-authoritative way of speaking he spoke as though he was god addressing the people and and he did stuff uh, that only god could do one thing that everybody knows about messiahs though is that they don't die so if you want to discredit a messiah a, a claimant someone who claims to be this someone who's leading the people then then you kill them but you don't just uh, kill them, you, you kill them in a way uh, that shames them, that disgraces them, that, that fills their whole entire story with failure and ignominy, so, as that, so as that their name can only be associated with that shameful death, if you like, the cross. It was a gruesome, Painful, humiliating way to end such a radically confronting life, but such a magnetic life, such an attractional life. And it worked. The Gospels record for us the scattering of the disciples, the denial of the disciples, the the hiding out in houses of the the disciples, just two of them heading out of Emmaus, The, the confusion, the dismay, The death of Jesus and now the apparent speculation that his body has been taken has not bloomed into some kind of, you know, grand aha moment. Ah, yes, now it all makes sense. And and off they went. Far from it. It has gone through this group of people just as the authorities had hoped, just as the religious leaders had hoped. It has gone through them like a wrecking ball. And they're all over the shop, hiding in homes. You know, a couple of them trudging their way back to Emmaus, talking about how disappointed they are. It will take something extraordinary to unify them with the kind of conviction, the kind of belief and faith that the followers of Jesus were transformed by, that they were transformed into and that they would in turn become the transformers of history, the way they did, and the resurrection of Jesus. Because he lives, remains the only plausible explanation for this transformation. John's account takes us into this historical eyewitness, uh, personal experience of how uh, devastation, how the devastation of Good Friday became the eternal good news. Of Easter Sunday he is risen and because he lives all fear is gone all doubt is gone this morning we are going to look at um, examine the empty tomb from John's account and see how the the lyrics to that song you know because he lived that, that flow out of the realities of Easter Sunday impacted the life of, of three of the people in this narrative and have, be, and have been impacting the lives of people for centuries. But one of the main issues that stops us from, from coming to this space, from ever considering what it means that Jesus lives... And by lives, when the Bible talks about that Jesus is risen, they mean that he is risen eternally. They mean that he is risen corporately and that he is in joyful, continuous, constant communion with God, relational access to God. It's not just eternal life. It's this quality of life that he has. And the thing that stops us from coming to it is it just seems too fantastical to be true. Jesus lives eternally means that on offer is, a, is the same similar recreated existence uh, in a physical body. If we go by how Jesus himself was raised for us, it'll be recognizable. Family and friends will, will notice who we are. And then on offer then is the recreation of the whole entire world to be a fit place for eternal beings who, like Jesus, now live in the eternal presence of God access to him because Jesus lives the afterlife is not just some kind of ethereal sort of vague speculation in Jesus it has become a concrete reality in in the person of Jesus put on display inside of human history and the question that Easter Sunday wants us to answer is would you rather look at the evidence for the resurrection and meet Jesus personally out of that or would you rather just be left with your own speculation and uncertainty and just kind of you know see what takes place see how it pans out for you would you rather have a defined purpose for and behind living or would you just rather hope for the best John's account of the resurrection is a great place to go because here we find the details that speak uh, to the authentic historicity of it. You just wouldn't write a a, a resurrection story up like this if if it wasn't true. More likely you'd be tempted to to make some parts of it more spectacular. You'd be tempted to, to maybe gloss over, leave out some of the other bits, but then you'd have to deal with the people who were there. John's account invites us to think rationally and to encounter relationally, to encounter personally. Firstly, the disciples didn't just instantly, magically believe in the resurrection. No. As their own accounts show, they were were in disbelief about the resurrection. They too had to be convinced beyond all reasonable doubt, uh, and that convincing begins with Mary's news in verses one to two that the tomb has is opened, that 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 it's empty and that somebody has taken the Lord. She she raises the alarm to to what's going on. And then Peter and the unnamed disciple is it's John. They run to the tomb there in verse 4. And then verse 4 it tells us that John outran Peter. He's obviously got a better cardio program than Peter, and he's got a bit more gas in the tank. And he gets and he stops at the entrance and he takes in what he sees there, the grave clothes still kind of just in, in, deflated, but in the form of, of Jesus, just in their shape, not touched. The, the, the head wrapping folded nicely there as well. The tomb itself is empty without a single evidence of any kind of foul play. The stone's been rolled back in order to let people in so that they can examine the fact that rather than being dead in a tomb for people to visit forever, Jesus appears to have miraculously left. Then Peter, kind of true to form, just boom, straight in to the tomb. But not not kind of like an outraged friend, not like a grieved relative, all, all chaos but no order, more like a detective. John says... Peter saw as well. Peter, Peter took in, as John did, what was going on. But all commentators agree that the word that John uses to describe Peter's actions, he's seeing, is one that means Peter um, was forensically examining the scene. He was taking in the evidence. He was examining the details, trying to reconcile why it was that Jesus was no longer in the tomb. Looking around, he's like, it can't be grave robbers. They don't clean up after, before they leave. And they don't leave the most expensive and the most valuable items there, the, the linen cloth and the spices and all that stuff. They, don't, they wouldn't leave that behind. It can't be grave robbers. It can't be some of Jesus' disciples. A, no one in that land would ever shame Jesus by carting his naked and beaten body around in public. like They just wouldn't do that. And B, we, we would have heard something. And we'd be going there and not here. And as history unfolded, if that did take place, they'd have a memorial there now. It'd be tourist attraction. You'd be paying money to go there and see it. But it couldn't be that. The soldiers only have their lives to lose by losing Jesus' body. So it's not going to be them. Something rather unexplainable has taken place here And John gives us a bit of a clue in verses 8, that that what they are seeing, what they are taking in, and what they are thinking through is laying down the evidence in their souls that Jesus actually lives. They're not over the line yet, but they are heading home to reevaluate, to think through, to discuss with the other disciples. Two men have now seen the empty tomb, and they believed in what they saw, that Jesus' absence can only be explained miraculously. There's no other explanation for it. They're yet to line it up with scripture. But what they do have, or what we do have, is a legally binding testimony of two male witnesses that say the only explanation for the absence of Jesus is something miraculous. The fingerprints of God are the only thing that are all over this tomb. We don't get to go into the crime scene. We get the brief. We get the compiled eyewitness of the accounts of the scene. And in that, we find the details. We read the details. It could only have been put there if it actually really happened. Written by minds and eyes that have, have reasoned with the facts and are now presenting them to us in, in a legally binding way, in a persuasive way. Which brings us to the next inclusion in John's account. We read about that in verses eight, 11 to 18. And that is that the main witness, the first person to see Jesus alive, resurrected, is Mary Magdalene or Magdala. If you want to write a resurrection account, you would write this out of it, because this is where it loses its credibility. You don't write as your main witness, Mary Magdalene, unless it it actually took place, unless you Unless you can't deny that that's what happened. Unlike two men, a single woman or even a group of women are not considered trustworthy or valuable or reliable witness in the culture in which they lived. A Celsus, he's a second century critic of Christianity. He, he kind of wrote against it. Mocked the idea that Mary Magdalene was the alleged resurrection witness. Referring to her as an hysterical female, deluded by sorcery. It's a dig at her background, not just a dig at her gender. Because we know, or I think we know, that Mary was a demon act. You you read about that in Luke 8. So so he's trying to discredit her. Look into her background and say, do you know who the main witness is? She's not just a, a woman, she's a crazy woman. Her background is she's insane. And this is who you're taken? How can any this is quote from Celsius, how can anyone expect a rational man to listen to the testimony of a hysterical female? And yet every single gospel records that the first witness was Mary and other women. Justin Taylor writer for the Gospel Coalition points out, first, this is a theological reminder that the kingdom of the Messiah turns the systems of the world on its head. Into this culture, Jesus radically affirms the full dignity of women and the value and the vital value that their witness plays in society. We looked at that in Colossians. Second, it's a powerful apologetic reminder of the historical accuracy of the resurrection accounts. If these were cleverly devised myths, women would never have been presented as the first eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. Historians will tell you that this is a death knell for a movement. There's no other reason for writing it like this apart from it actually took place, and you can't deny it because the people exist. You're going to write this and not include Mary. Mary's going to turn up and go, hey, I was there. Another evidence of the truth that Jesus lives is that those around him who claimed it, those around him, jesus who claimed to have seen him and paul writes about them in first corinthians 15 that beyond peter and the 12 and it's not like peter and then another 12 that means paul's acknowledging that peter's the leader of the 12 peter and the 12 some 500 other people including jesus's skeptical brother james his half brother james remember in the gospels he thought jesus was just nuts try to drag him home lock him in the bedroom and Paul himself, who is possibly the greatest adversary to the story of the resurrection, all of these people go on to live radically different lives, go on to live radically convicted lives about the resurrection. History records that all of the apostles, um, John took a little bit more killing than the rest of them, but they all died defending the resurrection, every single one of them. And nothing explains that apart from the resurrection actually took place. Not much else, in fact, probably nothing, accounts for the fact and that overnight hundreds and hundreds of Jewish men and women began to worship a man. If there is one group of people that this would be unimaginable for, it's the Jews. But it took place. They began to treat him as God. They began to gather and discuss how the resurrection made sense of all the claims and the promises of the Old Testament and and began to make sense of all the claims that Jesus had made while he was alive. Claims like, I can forgive your sins. I am the resurrection and the life. I and the Father are one. We, We share the same nature. I have come that you might have life. Have it in the full. And all of these enigmatic sayings became clearer we're given context and meaning in a wonderfully life transforming way because he lives. Because he lives, there is concrete evidence that life after death is not just real, but it exists a certain way. Because he lives, there is a, a resurrection in the middle of human history, not at the end, not it's speculative, not at the end. And that resurrected life in the middle of human history. Jesus is now being offered to other people in the middle of human history. And it makes sense now that Jesus said stuff like in John 5, truly, truly, I say to you that whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has now eternal life. And again, that's a quality of life, not just a duration of life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life, like right now, as they hear, as they believe. That makes sense now because he lives. We have the evidence to make sense of the claims that Jesus has been making. Because he lives, everything that sin has torn apart is going to be put back together again. Like sin ultimately tears everything apart to the point of death, but that's been put back together again, recreated because he lives. Because he lives, death has lost its sting and its claim. Because he lives, all things have changed. And their lives are now lived accordingly. Now lived accordingly to the evidence that is standing right in front of them. If it was not the resurrection, then what? What could have done this? You would need a far more fantastical story than Jesus just doing what he said he came to do. Easter Sunday asks us the question, would you rather ignore the evidence and miss Jesus, or see, forensically reason through the evidence. Read through the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus and meet Jesus. But Easter Sunday does more than put forward historical facts and cases. It comes to us personally, profoundly, relationally. Its facts uh, fuel feelings. Its truth enlivens the spirit. What difference does Because He Lives Make to you, is that a is that a statement where you you feel you know the change that it's brought in your life? Easter Sunday because He lives. John's brief that he gives us examines the the resurrection and presents us with evidence, but it also presents us with people who are coming to see that because he lives, their lives are now defined by the eternal relationship with Jesus and all of the claims and all of the promises that he pushed across the table while he lived. Like everything that he did while he lived is now ultimately true because he lives again. Like we're pushing into the question that, that Sandy asked. And the answer is both. But one of these people is Mary. Mary starts Easter Sunday like the rest of Jesus' followers in grief and confusion. Her friend, her mentor, the miracle worker who transformed her life from demonic slavery and humiliation and social marginalization to human flourishing and dignity and value is is dead. This man of God who saw her for what she could be and not what her circumstances and conditions made of of her. However, for all that Jesus has done in her life and all that Jesus did in front of her, she still has no categories for a resurrection. So she goes to care for the body of a dead friend. And her grief is compressed when even that has been taken from her. And so she weeps. It's good sometimes to sit in our grief. Often we're... We're in too much of a hurry to move through grief. But Mary is not. The account of Jesus' first appearance is not how anyone would naturally lean to writing it up if we were writing, you know, myths and fables. And not just because it begins with a woman, but because it's just simply so unimpressive. We read in verse 14 that Jesus has concealed himself from Mary, which seems to be something Jesus does. There's a, there's a tension with the resurrected Jesus. On one hand, Jesus' body can be touched. It can be, it can be felt. You punch him in the shoulder. Uh, he, he cooks and he eats fish. like he, he, he eats like a normal person. He's recognizable to others. We know it's him. We see the wounds that are still there, and we know that's Jesus. But then on the other hand, He's done some crazy things. Like he's risen through, his, his grave clothes are still there, intact. He appears in locked rooms. And at times he's unrecognizable, like he conceals himself. And we don't really get an explanation for this, so we speculate about it. And we think, oh, you know, this, whatever, whatever that is. But the one thing that we know for sure that's going on here is that it's not self-absorbed. There is never any, here I am, back from the dead, come bow before me, be impressed. You know, if we were writing it, we would have him turn up with some kind of crazy, big thing. We do that in all of our narratives, in everything we write. And even now, con- contemporary writing, you, you watch the Marvel movies, like Mysterio, when he wants to convince the world that they're going to be saved through him, he puts on a big show. It's dramatic. That's what we would lean towards. Not Jesus. True to form, Jesus stays focused on the conditions and the concerns of others. So concealed from Mary, he asks her to examine her actions and her emotions. Why are you weeping? Who is it that you're seeking? Essentially, what kind of Messiah is it that you think you've come to find here? A dead one? You need to widen your categories. It's a gentle way of rebuking the small picture that even Mary has of Jesus. A picture built by the categories of a limited understanding of who Jesus really is. Then Jesus just speaks her name, Mary. Not Mary Magdalene. Not the old name that identifies her with her broken past. But the restored name. The name that he has come to address her by. Mary this is the Lord saying, Mary, nothing's changed. I still love you. I'm still in your life. You are, you are still the Mary that I restored. But because I live, these things are eternal. They don't die with the grave. They don't die with my grave. You don't need to hang on to me. I am always here, always with you. For a little while, that will be through the agency of the Holy Spirit. But relationally, eternally, we can never be separated again. Your identity that I've given you remains. Go tell the others about these new relational, eternal privileges that I have with the Father that I have now given to you. You now relate to God the way I relate to God, as as Father, as, as intimate Father. Because I live, anguish and despair, swallowed up in astonishment and delight. Because he lives, Mary is not defined by her past, but will always forevermore be defined of what Jesus makes of her and is brought into her life. The same kind of relationship that Jesus has with the Father is now being experienced by Mary. Can you imagine people like Celsius trying to put Mary back in the crazy woman box? Not going to happen. Why? Because he lives. Mary is defined by something greater. Thomas is another person whose life is reshaped by the fact that Jesus lives. We come to him in verses 19 to 25. He's often called Doubting Thomas, which is a bit of a harsh characterization what he really is, is destroyed Thomas. He has taken the death of Jesus harder than the rest, you could speculate. Apart from John, Thomas probably exhibits the strongest love for Jesus out of all of, this, all of the disciples. We read about it in John 11. John, John is the gospel writer who gives us a little insight into Thomas. In John 11, it's Thomas alone who's prepared to travel with Jesus to Jerusalem to face certain death if jesus wants to go and die then let's go die with him better to die with jesus than be away from jesus you know what thomas is thomas is like a willing pessimist he can see the worst in any situation but he is unshakably committed to going there with jesus his devotion to jesus will take him there It was Thomas uh, in, in John 14 that wanted to know the way to find Jesus. When Jesus starts to talk about, I've got to go, I've got to go, prepare a place. I'm going to send somebody else, but as I go, I'm going. But you'll know the way to find me. Don't panic. But Thomas is not satisfied with this kind of cryptic outline. Thomas has a deep love for Jesus, and the idea of being separated from Jesus is unacceptable to him. So the death of Jesus has filled this man with all of his worst fears. And commentators feel that his grief sees him isolated, not wanting to be around others as he processes what all this means. It's speculative, but it fits the profile. So he's not there when Jesus appears to the disciples. And we read about that in verses 19 to 23. The news of Jesus, though, as the disciples discovered, is just too fantastic so they must go and find Thomas and they're saying to him, mate he's he's risen he's alive and they keep telling him and telling him but it's too fantastic for him to take in his pessimistic nature needs hard evidence which you know we call him in Thomas but if you read the account Jesus showed his scars to all of the disciples they all got the same evidence but we give Thomas this cheap nickname Probably based on this verse, unless I see his hands and the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails. Like, I want to put my finger in there. This could be a makeup job. Who knows? Place my hand into his side. I will never believe. That's a pretty strong statement. Like, oh man, I could get there. At this point in time, I will never believe. Believe. Again, when Jesus turns up, there's no big fanfare. There's no, Thomas, behold, believe. Look at this. Jesus just moves towards Thomas. And almost like he's been listening to Thomas's worst fears. All of his skepticisms. All of his demands for evidence. Like Jesus has been in the room with him. Jesus asks him to address the evidence that he needs. Hey, Thomas. Put your finger here, mate. See my hands and put your hand here and and place it on my side. Don't disbelieve. Believe. And again, it's a gentle rebuke. But it's also Jesus meeting Thomas where he needs to be met. Because he lives. He moves towards Thomas to meet him where he needs to be met. He does not demand that Thomas do all the heavy lifting, that Thomas work his way back. He does the work for Thomas. Like in all of these accounts, it's Jesus moving towards us. We would never move towards him. He has to move towards us. Jesus is clear to Thomas, you shouldn't need to see see me. The testimony of the apostles, the testimony of the apostles should have been enough. I mean, that's what we get, right? However, in order for Thomas to join as a witness to the resurrection, Thomas actually has to see the risen Lord Jesus. So there's, there's purpose here in this as well. Like in order for him to be able to go and proclaim a risen Lord Jesus, he actually has to see him. So Jesus speaks to Thomas both as a commission in this moment, but also as comfort. Because he lives, Thomas's life is no longer defined by destructive, devastated pessimism. Because he lives, Thomas reaches further in faith than any other person has ever reached any of his friends reach that's for sure and he says my lord and my god it's an assertion we really don't have the time for to get into but it shapes how thomas spends the rest of his life jesus says he's lord jesus says he's god we only need the testimonies of the apostles the written accounts If we let them speak to us, if we let them speak to our fears, speak to our doubts, speak to our anxieties, our questions, they will bring us to a personal encounter with Jesus. Sometimes we just need to drop our conditions. Sometimes we just need to drop the conditions that we put over Scripture and just read it for what it is. You know, I'll only believe in Jesus if he... Heals me if he gives me this or lets me marry that person or shows me something or other. Sometimes we just need to drop the conditions and meet Jesus how he wants us to meet him. Finally, the third person in this whole thing is Peter. And Peter has already spent time with the risen Lord Jesus, but it's been a bit awkward. Peter knows that the last exchange between him and Jesus before the cross was Peter's denial of Jesus. And in chapter 21, verses 15 to 19, Jesus pulls Peter aside and he restores him. We read through it. Because Jesus lives, failure is not final. Peter was probably reconsidering a life as a fisherman at this point. His boats, this is you know beside the sea, his boats are in the backdrop at this moment. Why would Jesus want someone like Peter who's who's betrayed him relationally and, and, and in loyalty? He can understand Thomas being being welcomed back, because Thomas is a loyalist. Thomas Thomas would have gone and died, but not him. And again, Jesus with a gentle rebuke restores Peter. It must have been painful to hear Jesus ask him three times if Peter loved Jesus. But in the end, Jesus invites Peter to follow him. Because he lives, Peter's failure is not final. It's not going to be what defines the rest of his life. What's going to define the rest of his life is this encounter with the risen Lord Jesus, who invites him in. All these people had heard every word that Jesus said had seen every miracle that he performed. They did not need more teachings, more doctrine, more displays of of good deeds. What they needed was an encounter with the resurrection, to encounter the risen Lord Jesus. That is what has transformed their lives. Because he lives, all of them are now significantly marked Because he lives, he takes our stories and he transforms them with eternal purpose. Because he lives, he takes our stories and he rewrites them into his future, not our past. Because he lives, he takes the fiercest loyalties and devotions and he gives them a place to land with joyful and deep satisfaction, not disappointment, not pessimism. Because he lives, our worst failures, our darkest moments are not final. They are restored through grace because he lives and we have read what John wrote because he lives and the question is what would you write what would you write about yourself right now because he lives as we close Easter today maybe you want to write something we've made a bit of a blackboard here we're going to finish the, the time with the song, Because He Lives. And if you want, you don't have to, but you can come up and write something on this wall, Because He Lives.